Well, some of you might not know this, but we're connectional as a church, meaning that we're part of a network of churches together called a Presbytery. And one thing that we have been doing as a Presbytery, we've been very proactive in wanting to train people for ministry. And we've been doing that through a program called On Wisconsin, and today we get three of those people are here with us today, three of those students. And what that does is we help fund their seminary education through Reformed Theological Seminary, which is in Orlando. And they travel to Orlando once or twice a year, and then they take online courses. They're part of a cohort of other students here in Wisconsin that they train together over a five-year period, which will give them a divinity degree, which is a graduate degree, to go ahead and plant other churches here in Wisconsin. And today, we get to have Michael Vogel. Michael is a student part of the On Wisconsin program. Uh, Michael is working at uh, Lake Trails Church in Madison, which is another Presbyterian church in Madison. And uh, it's our privilege to have him bring the word to us today. He's being evaluated during this time, too. Um, there will be a number score, and I'll make sure everyone, you can hand out what number you think. No. <laughs> This is great training for him to be able to bring the word to us and get some good practice. I think he's doing a preaching lab this week in Orlando, am I right? Oh, man. Practice before the preaching lab. Oh, man. Oh, I have preaching lab stories. Oh, man. Oh, man. Professor sometimes. Like, that was really bad. I remember a professor saying that to me. I was like, awesome. Anyway, so, side guy. Okay, um, hopefully he doesn't say that to you. because you encouraging words in uh, your ministry preparation. To Emmaus Road, thank you for getting me up. Letting me have a break once in a while. Uh, my wife and I were able to get away this week. Allowing other people to come and preach allows me to have, be able to have a break. And uh, thank you for your grace in hearing other people than myself, which is good to hear voices other than just myself up here. And uh, again, we'll be continuing in the New Testament in First and Second Thessalonians in a couple weeks. But Michael's going to come and give us a little break from that and hear from me. So without further ado, Michael Vogel. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Dan. Uh, it is great to be here with you, Mayus Road Church. Um, so if you will... Feed down there in your bulletin the passage for this morning, Genesis 32, 22 through 32. The context of this passage is that Jacob is now fleeing from his uncle Laban, who he has just cheated out of a deal, and he finds out that his brother Esau is coming to meet him. And here he is alone, without anyone else, and he finds himself in a current, sudden moment of adversity. So follow along with me in Genesis 32. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? 
And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. And there and then but he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And Mary blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning listening to you, not simply because you are a God who reigns from heaven, but also reigning from heaven, you sent your Son down to this earth to walk among us, to preach to us, to die for us and rise again from the dead. Let us hear you this morning of that truth, of you calling to us. In your name we pray. Amen. What's in a name? That question from Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet still persists with us today. What, what consequence, what meaning do names have for us today? Because our culture does not place the same emphasis on naming as they did in the Bible. Today, we, we don't name in an attempt to describe or define our children. Rather, we name as a way to honor a family member, or perhaps a figure, or might reference a biblical idea like joy or hope. Other times we pick names that sound pretty or we have certain fond associations with, and then we avoid other names because of negative associations, or perhaps names that have fallen out of fashion. When my uh, wife Emma was born, her, par uh, her parents had a lot of people coming up to them saying, Oh, Emma, my great aunt's name was Emma. Fortunately, in time, Emma has risen to popularity away from great aunt status. Uh, I like to tease her that we should have a child and name her after one of my great great aunts, Bertha. Uh, I think it's a very strong, uh, yet delicate feminine name. She thinks Bertha would be quite the curse on a poor child. And I think you can imagine other names that might make the playground tough for certain young children. Yet let's carry this idea about naming, about the meaning of names into our passage this morning, as we see a name change as a response to a blessing request. In the midst of a fierce wrestling match, Jacob declares he will only let his opponent go if he receives a blessing from him. And yet he gets a new name. How is that a blessing? Well, I propose that this name change gets to the heart of Jacob's struggle, and also to the heart of our struggles as well. The scene, the setting of a wrestling match is an apt picture of our lives, isn't it? Our lives of sin, our, our lives in this world keep us in a constant state of struggle of striving towards a goal, but meeting adversity and opponents. And yet here, out of the struggle, 
Jacob walks away with a blessing. Or perhaps I should say he limps away with a new name, a new perspective on the world around him, and a new perspective on his struggle. This scene is an absolute pivotal point in the life of Jacob, because it is the moment of transformative redemption for him. The message of this wrestling match, the message of this text is that when we receive the blessing of the Lord, we are changed. And I want to spend our time looking at three areas in which we see Jacob's life changed by the redemptive blessing of the Lord's salvation. So first, we see that the blessing of the Lord changes Jacob's name. As I was alluding to before, the way they saw names in the ancient world was a way of defining the person's character, of giving them identity. And Jacob, he is a fascinating case study on the significance of names in the Old Testament. Let's jump over to his birth and the birth of him and his brother Esau in Genesis 25. So in Genesis 25, beginning in verse 24, the word, the word of the Lord says, When her days, that is his mother, Rebecca, Re, uh, Rebecca, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her room. The first, that is Esau, came out all red, his body hairy like a cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, Isaac, was 60 years old when she bore them. If you look down at the bottom of your notes, in the bottom of the footnotes of your Bible, you might see a little footnote about what the name Jacob means. It means he takes by the heel, or he cheats. This is what his parents decide to name him. Cheater. Really setting him up for a prosperous life there, aren't they? But the interesting part of that naming is, is that this is exactly how Jacob chooses to live his life. At every crucial moment of struggle and striving in his life, he cheats and he runs away. You could say, Jacob, Jacobs. <coughs> Jacob does not have a birthright, so what does he do? He cheats it from his brother Esau in an unfair trade. When Esau is to receive a blessing from their father Isaac, who's blind and old, what does Jacob do? He deceives his poor, aging, blind father by disguising himself to smell and feel like his hairier brother Esau. And when Esau learns of this, he bitterly and accurately replies, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. When he flees then to his uncle Laban, he strikes up a deal with him to divide their flock between the two, that Jacob will take the speckled flock. And so Jacob goes in and interferes with the breeding process of the sheep, so to double the speckled flock and double his rewards. And here, in this passage, he's fleeing from Laban and running into Esau. And it is at this point, when all those people he has cheated are closing around him, all those people he has decided to cheat and run away, are leaving him nowhere to run, and he is left alone 
alone without a plan to change his way and run. And that is exactly where God comes to him. So this wrestling match begins. And Jacob once again sees an opportunity to cheat his way and get a blessing from this man. We can't yet identify because of the darkness of the early morning. But in response to this request, God asks him his name. Why? By asking his name, God forces a confession out of Jacob. He forces Jacob to say exactly who and what he is. Who am I? I'm a cheat. In all of Jacob's strivings, in all he has done, he has cheated. And now when he cannot cheat anymore, God says to him, your, no, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and have prevailed. His new name, Israel, marks a life-changing moment, because now, in his struggles, he will no longer be a cheat, but one who strives with God. And God will struggle with him and for him, because that, that is how God is renamed Jacob may still wish to cheat. His struggles will still remain. But he is called by a new name. He is called to a new character. His name, this name change transforms his identity to, an identif to be identified with God. When my wife and I got married, there were many, many different changes. But one most notable was that she took my last name. Now, simply having my last name did not all of a sudden make her my wife. It didn't make her act any differently. It didn't make her part of my family just by having that last name. But the last name change reflected the relationship change, the commitment that she was making. Her new last name reflects the decision, decision to enter this particular relationship. It's not the remarkable thing going on here, the name change. Rather, it reflects a deeper relational transformation. And this kind of, this kind of transformation that refers to our relationship is what happens to us when God restores our hearts that we may have faith in his son, Jesus Christ. When we become Christians, we are called sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. No, Christian, know that you are not merely called sinner, but sinner, loved, and saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But therein lies the tension of the Christian life. We are called to holy living, and yet we still sin. We are called to leave behind our sinful ways, and yet every day we fall back into that. How do we balance that tension? Do you just live in grace and continue sinning? Or do you try to deserve God's favor and try to work your way into salvation? This is the tension of the Christian life. And it is based on a lie and a false dichotomy. Because we are not called to holy living because it's what gets us into heaven. We are called to a holy life because 
That is the name by which we're called now. If you look to Christ as your only hope of salvation, you are called righteous by God. So then walk righteously, because you are being called righteous. Live as Christ lived, only because that is by the name you are called. You are called to rely on the Holy Spirit. Take on your new identity. You are identified with Christ because God has striven for you. Now the second way in which we see the Lord's blessing change Jacob is that he changes Jacob's perspective on the world. After he receives this blessing and the sun is rising overhead, Jacob realizes just who this man was. The man wished to be let go because he was nearing dawn. He did not want his face to be seen. Because he was God in human form. Jacob sees that the God of his father Isaac and his father Abraham had come down from heaven to convict him of his sinful ways of striving. But then also to bless him. Jacob's terrified because he knows that no one can see God's face and live. And so he says, I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. So Jacob renames the place Peniel, or literally, Face of God. Not just to commemorate his own renaming, but to commemorate this redemptive moment in his life. This was where his life was snatched from danger. This was where he was delivered from the judgment of God. This was where the impossible was now, how specifically, though, does this change his perspective on the world? Jacob doesn't seem to value this square patch of earth as particularly magical. He doesn't return to it as if to believe this is the only place where God will reveal himself. Rather, he's recognizing and, and wrestling through this mystery that God had come down to him. God came down and wrestled with him in the dirt and the dust, and he bears a limp now to prove that it happened. He can point to his leg and point to this place and say, See, this is where God revealed himself and touched me. The word here that is translated wrestling is related to the Hebrew word for dust, which is interesting when you think about where this wrestling match is taking place. It's not upon the rubber mats you remember from high school gymnasium, but on the dirty, dusty ground. So perhaps you can imagine Jacob's total shock to realize that the Lord of the universe had come down to wrestle him upon the dusty earth. The earth is worth coming down to. When Jesus Christ came to save us, he did not stay on his throne. He did not appear hovering above us in the sky. No. He came into, this create, into his own creation filled with all this filth and dirt and sin. This means that there's, there's a tangible quality to what we believe. We are not like the Gnostics who believe that all things spiritual were good and all things physical were bad. But we look to the Incarnation where... God and man were one flesh. He walked on this 
so we too are to go out valuing this earth, caring for this earth, caring for the physical as well as the spiritual needs of one another, our fellow man. Knowing that Christ has come to our earth to save us should cause us to care for the physical things in front of us as well. Christianity has often struggled over the issue of what we do with the earth around us. What do we do with this culture? And it has led many Christians throughout time to just withdraw from the earth, withdraw from culture, just focus on the spiritual things. But the fact that God came down among this earth, among dirty, sinful individuals, that we are to take action and care for our fellow man, preaching the gospel, preaching the word of God to them, caring for spiritual and for physical needs. Lastly, we see how God has redeemed a cheap life taken. We must pray for even the most unlikely conversions. God's will and God's mercy stretches out across this whole earth. The interesting thing about uh, talking about Epiphany Sunday is when you stop and think about who the Magi were who came to Christ. They were not Jewish. They were not part of the chosen nation of Israel. And yet God called them to see this miracle. God, in coming down through Jesus Christ, means that this message is for all the world. Isn't that remarkable, amazing way to look at this earth around us? We're not just stuck here, just us, but constantly growing and spreading out. Saying, as, as Jacob pointed to the, the earth, saying this is where God revealed himself. So we are to go out pointing to scripture and pointing to the world around us, saying this is where God has revealed himself to us. Now this last way in which the Lord's blessing changes Jacob is in how Jacob will struggle. Jacob's struggles are far from being over. Just because he has been renamed and blessed by God does not mean that he is free from all hardship. He will face further death and loss. He will watch his beloved wife, Rachel, die. He will see the disappearance of his son, Joseph, and will not be reunited with him until near the end of his life. His life is still filled with struggle and strife. But what changed Jacob here at Peniel how? Look at the beginning of verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. This is how Jacob has chosen to live his life. Sure, he'll take advice of how to cheat others from other people, but he's always doing things his own way, on his own, and running away on his own. All this has ever done for him, though, is greatly increase his struggles and only make life harder for him. Yet, continued to strive in that way. <clears throat> but this moment at the fords of the Jabbok River is the last moment of his solitary striving. Because here God comes to him to give him a physical, lasting image of what all his striving for all his life had been. He was not merely struggling against man, but ultimately struggling against God. 
Now that God has come down to earth, now that God has changed his name, identity, and walk, Jacob will no longer strive alone and by deceit. Furthermore, he will never be able to strive and struggle in the old ways as he now has a debilitating limp. He's not going to run away from those who choose. This physical mark forces Jacob to slowly walk in the Lord's time and in the Lord's way. It forces him to forever rely on God's word in all his striving. This final change brought by the Lord's blessing is a complete transformation of Jacob's paradigm for the struggles of life. Because God will be with him in all his struggles. God, who is powerful, powerful over all his struggles, will be the reason he prevails. God, in touching his hip, says, I am the one who moves first. I am the one who strives first. Cease from striving against me. I am striving with you now. This promise was not just for Jacob. It was a promise for his descendants as well, anyone who bore the name of Israel, would always have that reminder that God is with them, striving with them, prevailing with them. And yet the nation of Israel still faced a host of struggles, of slavery, oppression, invasion from neighboring enemies, and exile. And yet, through all of that, God said to them, I'm striving with you. I will fulfill my promises. And that's what we see in Emmanuel, God with us. God sent his son down to the dusty earth so that everyone, every nation and tongue, by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, would receive that blessing of the Lord's salvation, of the Lord's work for them. Jesus' work as he walked among the dusty ground and then was buried into it, brought about the defeat of sin. And when he rose again on the third day, shaking off the dust of the grave, he defeated death itself. And you may be sitting here still wondering, how, how is that good news for me? Because I am still facing sin. And I am still staring down death in the face. How is my striving in life supposed to be any different? How do we sense the work of God working against the struggles of sin when we are still giving in to temptation? When every morning you say to yourself to hold your temple, temper, to be honest, to be emotionally, <coughs> mentally faithful to your spouse, to treat your kids well, to work hard at work and not take cut corners and cheat. How do you understand Christ's victory over death when you are still burying loved ones? If God is striving with you, that means a simple, important truth. You are never alone in your struggles. In those moments, feeling defeated, feeling full of penitent shame, God is there desiring to restore you. 
In those moments of deepest and darkest sorrow over death, God weeps with you. Jesus Christ suffered temptation that he might know our every affliction. He lost friends and loved ones and visibly wept over their death. Christ himself tasted the dust of death, but did not remain there. The cross was our punishment for our strivings, and Christ drove towards that one place that our strivings would bring us. Christ went there in our place, so that he now says to us, don't try to defeat what I have already defeated and conquered. Christian, your sins are defeated by Christ. And I want you to remember to preach that truth to yourself in temptation. As you feel that temptation is wrestling you into the dust, look to Christ and pray, Jesus, I know that you have conquered this foe, but right now it feels like it's conquering me. Speak to me through your spirit. Help me to know that truth. Help me to see your victory. Help me to see personally that you're striving in victory over my sin. Our wrestling with sin and death is won by remembering Christ's victory. When we remember Christ's victory, we see sin defeated and death killed. But these struggles will still remain and will still be difficult. That means all the more that we must live in this constant, dogged remembrance of the work of Christ for us. Remember how he wrestled one. I myself have often been confused by the popularity of the name Jacob. As the years have gone by, Jacob has always remained one of the common names for our young boys. You know, the Bible tells us it means cheater. But if your name is Jacob, don't worry. Because it wasn't until looking more closely at this story that I realized what a beautiful thing the name and life of Jacob is. The life of Jacob is not about how a shrewd and crafty man swindled and stole from his family. No. It's about the story of God striving after and pursuing a cheater and a liar. If your name is Jacob, you can read the gospel presented to you in your own name. Jacob, by his name, is a sinner who God grabs hold of and blesses. With a new name, an identity, a new perspective on this creation, and hope in struggle. What is the church then? But a gathering of Jacob's whom God has collected and called to himself, naming us Israel, because in sending his son for us, he strove in our place. We do not have to wrestle a victory over sin and death. Jesus Christ 
wrestled thin and deaf and crushed its head, walking away with not a limp, but a bruised heel. Christian, Jacob, you have been called by God by your new name. Come to him and cease your strife. Oh God, our, our Father, we continue to struggle against this meaning of being called by the name of your Son, being blessed by the clothing of his righteousness, Lord. Help us today to remember that amazing mystery of the Incarnation and the beautiful miracle of our salvation. Walk with us. Strive before us. Let us see your working and your striving in our lives. Help us to trust that your work is sufficient, that your grace enables us and fulfills us. In whose name we pray.